0: Frequently, the partisan attacks targeted the vital supply trucks operating in the vast spaces of the rear area. Their actions were striking at the weakest link in the German army, placing further demands on the stretched and exhausted German forces. Motorized units were especially important for responding quickly to partisan assaults and hunting down the attackers. It was yet another diversion the Panzer groups could scarcely afford. Lemelson's 48th Panzer Corps noted on 19 August 1941, That in the large forested areas, partisans were operating in groups of 30 to 40 men. Equipped with good weapons, these groups were said to be striking at any trucks driving alone through the region. Three days later, on 22nd August, the same war diary stated New is the increased partisan activity. The 4th Panzer Division received orders to conduct security actions against partisans on 24 August, but its operation failed to find the enemy. The same problem was noted by Hoth's Panzer Group, which reported on 23 August, quote, The partisans are obviously always informed as soon as German soldiers arrive in a village. The large forests and swamp areas always offer enough cover, so that finding them is extremely difficult, end quote. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. Episode 34, Resistance, Part 2. I'm Scott Burry, here in the original Redbeard studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa, and I'm very pleased to be speaking to you today. Remember, you can support this podcast in multiple ways. Make a monthly or a one-time donation through Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Barbarossa through reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you follow this podcast on. And by telling your friends who are into history of World War II or history in general, let them know beyondbarbarossa.ca. That opening passage that I just read to you was from David Stahl's excellent book, Operation Barbarossa and Hitler's Defeat in the East. And it exemplifies what I've been talking about last episode and this episode. Resistance to occupation. Not just against Germany, but also against the USSR all along the Eastern Front. As I covered last episode, the word partisan emerged to describe these loosely organized local resistance groups who often hid in the swamps, forests, and hills, and conducted guerrilla-like operations against foreign occupiers. The word partisan was actually coined by Yugoslavian resistance leader Josip Braz, better known as Tito, who himself derived it from the Spanish language. What makes describing resistance challenging is that it's so complex. In many occupied nations during the war, local men joined the Germans, often recruited into auxiliary units of the Waffen SS or armed SS. Some local people also joined local Nazi government or police units to oppress minorities like Jews and Roma and communists and other minorities, or to continue long running feuds. There were also many different and often competing partisan resistance groups. Some had goals of national independence, others were communist and aligned with and often directed by the USSR. Some resistors were pro German. And in Bielorussia or Belarus, there was also a significant Jewish resistance movement. Their goal was to protect the Jewish people who had had to flee and hide from their murderers. These various groups often fought each other as well as the occupiers. For example, Lithuanian national partisans mostly fought against the Polish Home Army National Resistance Group. That's what I meant last episode when I said that the resistance, whether it was against Nazi German or against Communist Soviet occupation, was messy. In some places, the war in the East could be described as having four distinct sides. Not only that, but these Various sides would sometimes align and then later oppose each other at different times during the war. Now, last episode looked more closely at the resistance in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Belarus, or Belarus. So this episode, we're going to look at the most significant partisan resistance action in Poland and Ukraine. Poland had long been a powerful country, long before the war, had a large population, a strong culture, and a distinct national identity. And the Polish people were determined to preserve that. Among this population, there's a lot of different opinions and strains of thought. There are nationalists, there are right-wing as well as left-wing ideologies at play, and they're all significant. The Second World War, by most accounts, started when Germany invaded Poland, which meant that the Poles were fighting longer than all the other countries in the Eastern Front, in fact, in the entire war. Now, the invasion of Poland in 1939, first by Germany, and then in two weeks, also by the USSR, divided the country. As I've described it many times before, it was the fourth partition of Poland. The German plan was to wipe out the Poles, to eliminate them, clearing the land for Germans, Lebensraum. But the Soviets, well, they deported hundreds of thousands of Poles to the USSR, particularly to Siberia. The NKVD executed thousands of POWs, and other Poles, for example, in the Katyn Massacre, and there were many others. So, of course, there was resistance. The Armia Krajowa, or Polish Home Army, fought against German occupation right from the beginning of 1939 and throughout the entire German occupation. I'm going to call it AK from now on. The AK was one of the three largest resistance movements in the entire Second World War. It had an underground state loyal to the Polish government in exile. It operated universities that granted degrees, and it had a court system and justice system. So it was, by a lot of arguments, it was an underground state. As the war progressed, the AK gradually absorbed a number of other organizations with both left and right wing leanings. There was also a pro-Soviet Communist People's Army, supported and directed by Moscow. But the Home Army, or AK, was the largest of all Polish resistance groups by far. It had 100,000 members when it was formed in 1942, and this number reached 200,000 by 1943. Now, just going back a little bit before the formal Before the formal incorporation of the AK, in March 1940, Polish guerrillas destroyed a German infantry battalion. This, along with other attacks, prompted the Germans to form a counterinsurgency unit in Poland. This unit included SS troops and a panzer group, so tanks. In 1940, so this is after the division and occupation of Poland, Partisans began the first Polish uprising of the war against the Soviets in the occupied town of Chortkow. And again, I apologize if I didn't pronounce that properly. This town is near the city of Telenopol, currently in Ukraine. It had previously been in eastern Poland before the war. See what I mean by messy and complex? Speaking of which, AK forces clashed with the Nazi supported Lithuanian territorial force early in the occupation. AK agents infiltrated Auschwitz and other concentration camps to send intelligence to the Western Allies. Thousands of Catholic activists participated in a range of ways to save about 50,000 Jews in Poland with things like providing shelter, false documents, and others. So, let's zoom in and take a look at some of the operations the AK carried out. For example, they carried out a series of actions uh, in support of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. This was an operation of, uh, or an uprising by Jewish residents who had been forced into a small area called a ghetto in Warsaw by the Nazis. Unfortunately, ultimately, this operation failed. Then, in 1944, so a year later, AK agents executed the SS police chief in Warsaw named Franz Kuchera. On 14 June 1944, so remember that date because that's, what, a week after D-Day and a week before the Soviets launched Operation Bagration. So 14 June 1944, 3,000 Polish and Russian partisans cooperated to fight about 10 times as many Germans who were trying desperately to clear the partisans from southern Poland in the Lublin area because the Red Army was coming ever westward. So they needed to get rid of as many enemies from this area so they could concentrate on resisting the advancing Red Army. The partisans in the area found themselves surrounded and bombarded by artillery. They counterattacked and managed to break out and find safety. They suffered about 170 casualties compared to 495 Wehrmacht soldiers killed, as well as other auxiliary forces and casualties or wounding among all those groups. However, by the end of June, another German operation led to the elimination of these groups of partisans. The most famous of the AK's activities, though, was Operation Tempest. This was a, supposed to be a nationwide uprising against the Germans as the Red Army closed in. The idea was to assert Polish independence. It began on 23rd July 1944 with an uprising in Lwów, the city now called Lviv in western Ukraine. This operation, this uprising was successful. The AK took the city and drove the Germans out by the 27th of July. So in four days, they rose and drove out the Germans. But the celebration was short-lived because the Red Army arrived in Lviv in a few days. They arrested the Polish soldiers and offered them a choice. Join the Red Army, comrade or take up a new residence in a nice gulag in Siberia. A month later, the Red Army was only 20 kilometers or 12 miles from Warsaw. This is when the AK launched the Warsaw Uprising. They had between 12,000 and 20,000 soldiers in the city, mostly with small arms. The occupying Germans numbered 20,000 army and SS troops tanks and artillery. Over 63 days, two months of fighting, the AK and the Germans went at it, tooth and nail. But the AK could not hold out. They didn't have the supplies, they didn't have the numbers, they didn't have the ammunition. Despite repeated appeals for help from AK commanders, the Polish government in exile, and the Western Allies, the Red Army, 20 kilometers down the road, refused to intervene in the operation. Soviet Marshal Zhukov and Rokossovsky claimed that their forces had suffered great losses and they were also afflicted with shortages of ammunition and supplies, being this far from their home bases back in Russia. So they would not move on Warsaw. This episode raises that question. Did Stalin and the USSR deliberately let the Germans and Poles kill each other in order to make it easier for their forces to take over later. After all, Stalin had called the the Polish Home Army, the AK, a criminal enterprise. And the Polish government in exile was anti-communist. So it's plausible that he did not want to help the AK take Warsaw back. But we'll never really know 100% whether they deliberately held back from supporting the Warsaw uprising. So now we come to Ukraine. I've left Ukraine to last because it best illustrates the chaotic complexity of the war in the east. Most of Ukraine, especially that largest part that had been within the USSR before the war, is flat open country. Great for tank operations, but not suited to partisan activity. As a result, most of the guerrilla resistance in Ukraine took place in the more forested, hilly, or mountainous western part of the country, Galicia, Halichina. Now, hold on to your seats, because we have to back up again. Before the Second World War, most of what we now recognize as Ukraine was a Soviet Socialist Republic. I put a map showing the difference between today's Ukraine and the uh, Ukraine of the Ukrainian SSR of 1939. What was not part of the Ukrainian SSR was the westernmost end. At that time, it was part of Poland. Now, before the First World War, this area had been under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Before that, well, a succession of different kingdoms, a commonwealth, a couple of different empires. If you want a really good description of the, I guess, the government of this part of Ukraine, I recommend a podcast called Wandering the Edge, specifically Season 3, Episode 57. I'll put a link in in the show notes. Anyway, this section had briefly been, this Western Ukraine, Galicia, Helichina, had briefly been an independent state, the West Ukrainian People's Republic that lasted from November 1918 to July 1919 and was ultimately reabsorbed into Poland in the interwar years. With the invasion of Poland, the Soviets reunited Ukraine, adding Western Ukraine, Galicia, i you know, into the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. And then, when the Germans invaded the USSR in 1941, Ukrainians famously welcomed them as liberators from communism. The retreating Red Army slaughtered 15,000 Ukrainian prisoners in Ukrainian jails en masse in that first week of the invasion. It didn't matter what their crime was or what their status was. There were Soviet partisan units operating in Ukraine. They were tightly controlled by the Kremlin, but they were small units and few, and they were not very active until 1943. As I said, Eastern Ukraine was not suited to guerrilla warfare, and in Western Ukraine, anti-communist Ukrainian partisan groups were well-established and widely supported by the local population. Of the probably 50,000 Soviet partisan members in Ukraine, most were not even Ukrainian ethnically. More than a third of them were ethnic Russians. Most of the activity of these pro-communist Soviet partisan groups was limited to disrupting German supply lines by destroying railways and tying down German security forces in Ukraine so that they had to be ready for whatever might happen. Now, this was not insignificant. Uh, it was important. And I'll give you an example of how important that was. One large Soviet unit was commanded by a man named Sidir Kovpak. They launched a long range raid in an attempt to destroy the oil fields in the Carpathian region. While it failed, it had a deep impact on German morale. Ukrainian partisans are here. They're there. They're everywhere. Oh, yes, also the pro-Soviet partisans fought against uh, partisans who sought Ukrainian independence. So let's talk about those partisans, the Ukrainian national guerrillas. The Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, OUN, or as they called it, OUN, was a military and political group dedicated to an integrated and independent Ukrainian state. But as all too often happens with these kinds of groups, it was riven with divisions and disagreements. It split in the late 1930s between factions led by Andriy Melnyk, Oun M, also called the Melnikites, and another faction led by Stepan Bandera, Oun B, or the Banderites. I'll get into what these two groups were about and what they did during the occupation of Ukraine after this short break. This episode is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian, Maurice Burry, drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941, just in time to be thrown between the jaws of the USSR and Nazi Germany at the launch of the greatest land invasion in history, the monstrous war called Operation Barbarossa. In three volumes, Army of Worn Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War, the Eastern Front Trilogy is the story of the largest and deadliest side of the Second World War, seen through the eyes of a man who was there from the earliest days in 1941, through Germany's grinding occupation of Ukraine, and finally to the savage end of the war in Berlin. You can find the three individual volumes as ebooks exclusively on Amazon, or purchase a three-volume complete paperback on any online book retailer or at your local bookstore. To learn more about the Eastern Front Trilogy, visit scottburyauthor.com.
1: Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel, and all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now, let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War.
0: Thanks for coming back to the second of this two-part series on resistance to German and Soviet occupation on the Eastern Front of World War II. Before the break, I introduced the main political organization of Ukrainian national consciousness in the early days of the war in the East the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or OUN. Its goal was a unified, integrated, independent Ukrainian state. In the late 1930s, it split into two factions, OUN-M under Andriy Melnyk, and OUN-B under Stepan Bandera. OUN saw Germany's invasion as an opportunity to achieve their goal of independence. Within the first days of the invasion, the OUN-B, the Bandaritz, proclaimed an independent Ukrainian state based in Lviv. Yaroslav Stetsko, Banderas' close ally, was named Premier. Now, the thing is, they did this without consulting the Germans. A fatal mistake. The Germans arrested Stetsko and the rest of the nation government and imprisoned them in Berlin. Power was put in the hands of, in the Western Ukraine, the general government. That's part of what they were doing to govern Poland. In the eastern portion, so in that, along that same division uh, between uh, what uh, Nazi Germany had taken and the Soviet Union had taken in 1939. So anything east of that was called the Reichskommissariat Ukraine. So while the Ukrainian nationalists saw Operation Barbarossa as a an opportunity to proclaim Ukrainian independence, the Nazis saw OUN as a potentially useful tool against the Soviets. And they saw Ukraine itself as only a rich source of the resources they needed. And they saw Ukrainians as slaves to exploit those resources. As quoted in Ora Subtali's Ukraine, a history, quote, of all the Eastern areas conquered by the Third Reich, Ukraine was by far the most important. It was the largest Soviet republic which the Germans occupied in full, and as a provider of food and manpower, it was second to none. End quote. 85% of the food the Nazis appropriated from occupied Soviet territories came from Ukraine. The Nazis accomplished this appropriation with all their characteristic brutality. Dashing the hopes of Ukrainians who had suffered under communism, the Germans maintained the collective farm system the Soviets had imposed. But they gave them cool new German names. The Germans reduced the amount of food and other production Ukrainians could keep for themselves, and forced farm workers to work from dawn to dusk. So that's how they managed to take so much, not just food, but all the other resources they desperately and increasingly needed. Naturally, the local people weren't happy about this. By early 1942, the Nazis had to forcibly round up young Ukrainians en masse, capturing them as they came out of cinemas or churches and forcing them to work. Thousands, hundreds of thousands were shipped to Germany to work as Ostarbeiter or slaves in German factories. In fact, of the 2.8 million Ostarbeiter workers, 2.3 2.3 million, so the vast majority, came from Ukraine. 2.3 million, think about that. Of course, the Ukrainians resisted. Immediately after the German invasion of the USSR, a man calling himself Taras Bulba Borovets, yes, a nom de guerre chosen from the novel by Gagal, formed a guerrilla unit of 1,000 men called the Polisian Sitch. So you see, Borovets had been an anti Soviet resistance leader in Volhynia, part of Soviet occupied Western Ukraine from 1939. According to some sources, Borovets had German support in forming the Siege, the name of which comes from the headquarters of the 16th century Ukrainian Cossacks. The Siege's first operations were to finish off remaining Red Army units in their area, Western Ukraine. But in late 1941, the Germans turned against the siege. So Borovets led his men into the forests and changed the name of his group to the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. In Ukraine, the ukrainska Polstanska Armiya, or UPA. They fought the Germans as well as the Soviets. In 1942, more Ukrainian guerrilla groups formed in the forests of western Ukraine, and this included many members of the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, both M and B factions. Now, I'm sorry I have to do this again, we have to back up a little bit. Before the invasion in 1941, the Nazis recruited about 600 Ukrainians, mostly from the Bandera faction of OUN, into the Legion of Ukrainian Nationalists. It had two battalions, Notchigal and Roland. Now one of the reasons the Ukrainian national leaders claimed or justified for cooperating with the Germans or joining German-controlled police forces was for the training and access to weapons this would uh, allow. The two units participated in Operation Barbarossa until August 1941. Then the Germans disbanded them in November 1941, moving them into a German-controlled police battalion in Belarusia for a year. After that, that battalion was uh, dissolved. A few of the members joined the SS Division Galicia of the Waffen-SS, but many went on to a Ukrainian guerrilla army. You see, in late 1942, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, OUN-B, the Banderists. Decided to form a large-scale partisan force to protect the local population against German repression and to claim the title as the People's Army of Ukraine before Soviet pro-communist groups moving into Ukraine from Belarus could do so. According to Ora Sibteli, OUN-B forcibly incorporated Borovets UPA and the armed units of the other faction, Oum, into their own organization, and they took over the UPA name as well. Its commander now was Roman Shukevich, a member of the disbanded Naktagal battalion. A number of other officers of the Naktagal and Roland battalions also joined, and UPA quickly grew into a large, well-organized partisan army with uniforms, ranks, quarters, artillery, and more. It's hard to get reliable details about an underground army, but the best estimates put its size between 30 and 40,000 fighters. Again, to quote Subtelny, Compared to other underground movements in Nazi-occupied Europe, the UPA was unique in that it had practically no foreign support. Its growth and strength were therefore an indication of the very considerable popular support it enjoyed among Ukrainians." I have to admit, there were some very far-right members among UPA and OUNB. A council of OUNB in 1943 sought to unite all Ukrainian organizations and um, ideas and address this. They stressed anti-Nazi doctrine, rejected Germany's New Europe idea, and they also rejected Communism. As well as ethnic exclusivity. They were going to open their doors to all. In August 1943, Commander Roman Shukhevich banned UPA and its members from participating in any anti Jewish activities. But uh, the founder of UPA, Taras Bulba Borovets, did not like it that his organization had been taken over by the Bandarites. He did not agree with their ethnocentrism, which they began with, and he actively opposed the terrorism that they carried out against ethnic Poles. So he took his group out of UPA and called it the Ukrainian National Revolutionary Army. UPA radicals did not take this well, and they attacked and killed several members of this group, including Borovet's wife. Stepan Bandera, leader of OUN-B, has been widely criticized as a fascist and anti-Semite. He did collaborate with the Nazis at the beginning of the war. Supporters claim that the idea was to drive out the communists and gain the training and weapons for Ukrainians to set up a real army, as well as an independent Ukraine. Those are good goals, but I'll let you decide how you feel about Stepan Bandera. This controversy highlights the messiness of the situation in Ukraine. Not only did UPA fight both the Germans and the Soviets, it fought savagely against pro-communist Ukrainian partisans, as well as the Polish home army, the AK. You see, where UPA operated, Western Ukraine, Halychyna, Galicia, Volhynia, Policia, was all claimed by Poland. And it had been part of that interwar Polish state, as I mentioned before. So, not only did AK and UPA clash repeatedly over claims, you know, competing claims for territory, both conducted massacres of civilians. In 1942, Polish forces massacred thousands of Ukrainian civilians around the city of Holm, now called Chelm, in western Ukraine. And for their part, the Poles claimed that Ukrainians massacred 60 to 80,000 Polish civilians in 1943 and 1944. A real tragedy. Both sides were fighting the same two far more powerful enemies, Nazi Germany and communist USSR. It's just another example of how oppressors use minor ethnic and cultural differences to divide people and use them for their own ends. UPa conducted about 74 operations against German forces in the summer of 1943 alone, resulting in more than 3,000 German casualties and 1,237 casualties among its forces. Fighting against the Germans continued through 1944 until the focus shifted to resisting the advancing Red Army again. And so at this point, they started to accept um, support and coordination with the Germans. So as you can see, it was a very complicated time and situation. So what did the Ukrainian independence partisans do? Well, here's an example. This is an operation carried out by my father-in-law, or participated in by my father-in-law, Maurice Bury, when he was in one of those UPA units. Maurice realized that they were in the train yard south of Ternapal. Silhouetted by lights on the station and, and other buildings, lines of box stars stood on ranked rails like sleeping cattle. Zazulak held one finger over his lips and gestured the other forward. Maurice copied his crouching run to the end of a series of boxcars and then around it. Zazelok halted deep in the shadow between two trains. He pointed at one of the cars. Olescu jumped onto the ladder built onto its side, and Maurice cringed at the soft ring of his boots on the rungs. At the top, Olescu pulled a large white card from a frame on the side of the car and clambered back down. Another man climbed the ladder of the car on the train beside the first one, brought down its card, and exchanged it for the one in Olescu's hand. Then the two men reclimbed the ladders and replaced the cards. What the hell are they doing? Maurice whispered. Switching the destination cards, Sazelac explained. Those cards indicate where each car is supposed to go. At each switching station, like this one, the Germans used the cards to tell where to send the car and how to organize the trains. Now they've got the wrong supplies at different destinations along the front. So, what good does that do? Maurice whispered as he watched McHugh and Olescu repeat their card exchange at the next pair of boxcars. The supplies still get to the front. You were an officer on the front lines, Maurice, Zazerlac said. Think about what it would mean if you got extra socks when you needed ammunition. End quote. That was a true story from a man who was in Ukraine, Maurice Bury, my father-in-law. To tell you the truth, the first time I heard this story, I thought it was little more than a prank, a dangerous prank for the pranksters who risked being shot if discovered in the train yard. But really, what could switching cards on a boxcar do? Then I read William Craig's Enemy at the Gates, the detailed account from eyewitnesses of the Battle of Stalingrad. Remember, Extended supply lines were the Germans' biggest weakness. There's an episode in the book, Enemy at the Gates, that describes how desperate the Germans were for ammunition in the winter of 1943, how difficult it was to get a train all the way across Ukraine and Russia through partisan attacks and more. And when the 6th Army in Stalingrad did receive a shipment of what they hoped was ammunition, what they got was Prophylactics. Partisans and guerrillas played a crucial role on the Eastern Front. They posed real problems for both Soviet and German forces. Partisans in Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia caused severe shortages and delays in critical supplies for the Germans. They forced both sides to commit significant forces that otherwise would have been at the front. Polish partisans were instrumental in revealing the Nazis' crimes in concentration and extermination camps. And while their uprisings ultimately failed, they were significant in the Nazis' ultimate defeat. But it's clear that the partisans were far more effective against the Germans than against the Soviets. They were unable to do much to even slow the Red Army's advance westward in 1944 and 1945. Perhaps if the Poles and Ukrainians had cooperated during the war instead of killing each other, they could have had a better hope of independence after the war. I guess we'll never know. Still, they had an undeniable impact on Germany and the USSR, on on their respective war efforts, and history. So, I'll end with a quote from David Glantz's book, Operation Barbarossa. Hitler's invasion of Russia, 1941. As the war progressed, the partisan threat rose to catastrophic proportions. In turn, the bitter partisan struggle increased the brutality on both sides. When asked to compare combat in the East with that elsewhere, a German panzer officer noted, quote, War in Africa and the West was sport. In the East, it was not. End quote. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of all these places and where they are, please see the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Click on the podcast button in the banner. You can find the books and podcasts I mentioned in the show notes and on the webpage too, such as Larissa Zarechnyak's Wandering the Edge podcast about Ukrainian history and culture. If you like this episode, I really appreciate a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you feel like it, please consider supporting this podcast through Patreon. You can find me on patreon.com slash beyondbarbarossa. Until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. I want to thank all who have already supported the podcast through Patreon, including William L. Hall, Nicholas A. Thomas, Eva Gru, Nick54, and Ashley Perez. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraine.